0: Money slow to enter money quick to go Money slow to enter where money they go I don't know I don't know. Yo, I didn't grow poor, but I didn't grow rich. It was increasing through life, but we were in a ditch. Hello, 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 hello. I am so happy um, to welcome you to the show called Shake Wall Before Use. Um, A show that is geared towards providing simplified medication information as well as talk about the disease conditions that these medications are prescribed for from a pharmacist point of view. My name is Osas, and I'm your friendly pharmacist. Don't worry about, um, you know, how to pronounce my name. I have been called Oasis, um, Osmosis, Isis, Yosef. As long as you get the gist of this show, uh, it's all good. Why listen to this show? What is the show all about? Um, I've had over 20 years of um, working in pharmacy, working in a hospital, and I have seen firsthand um, how the lack of medication information provided to our patients has contributed to uh, both non-compliance as well as polypharmacy, which also leads to unwanted drug and disease effects this show doesn't serve to replace your healthcare provider or your current treatment plan. Uh, It's just meant to create more medication and disease awareness uh, for you, the consumer, for you, the patient. Um, You know, one of the things that we've tried to do in the hospital setting, even in retail setting is to provide information about medications that a patient is getting to the patient. But as hard as we try and in, in all honesty, we do try to provide all this information. I personally, I don't feel like the hospital environment is the best place to transfer information regarding medications because, for one, the patient is unhappy in the sense that they don't feel good, they're hurting, they're being poked left, right, and center, they're being awoken in the middle of the night to draw a lab. So, I don't feel it's the perfect scenario to have a, a dialogue um, where there's a Q and A where you know the patient gets to ask me questions, I in turn. The patient questions, and we have a dialogue. So, this show, and even in retail setting, you know, most people go to get their medications, they're all about their business. You now, they don't want the next person, you know, behind, or, you know, beside them to know what they're getting, what's for. So, they hardly want to spend time to discuss with their pharmacists, which they have a right to do. You should always make time to talk to your pharmacist to get more information about medications because pharmacists, um, not to brag, but we are the drug custodians. We know about medicines. We know how medications are made. We know how... Um, how the body treats medications in the body. We know what medications do uh, to different systems in the body. So, you know, feel free to take the advantage to use your pharmacies as much as possible. I have had a bat- I have a bachelor as well as a doctorate in pharmacy. I am board certified in pharmacotherapy as well as ambulatory pharmacy. And like I said previously, not to toot my horn, I've had over 20 years of first-hand pharmacy experience, mostly in the hospital, but I've also worked in retail, meal order, specialty and oncology. I currently, as a disclaimer, do not work for any drug companies or any big pharma, and I have no vested interest or any shares in any particular medication out there in the market. So, welcome once again to Shake well Before Use. Our very first topic on this show is on hypertension. We're going to talk about hypertension as well as medications used to treat hypertension or used to manage hypertension, also called antihypertensives. Now, Due to how complex and, you know, uh, my um, belief to provide all the information that we need, I have broken this talk about hypertension into two shows. Today's show, we are going to look at the definition of hypertension from my perspective, as well as how we classify hypertension based on the various guidelines that are out there. And also look at one of the under, um, underappreciated, underlooked, part of uh, treating hypertension, which is BP measurements. The next show will then take a, an in-depth look at anti-hypertensive therapy. So why hypertension? Why is this first show um, starting off with hypertension? I'll give you a couple of data points here. According to the World Health Organization, in 2019, I'm right at the precipice of the COVID-19 pandemic, the number one and number two leading cause of death Globally, it was heart disease and stroke. On that same list, number 10 was kidney disease. According to the CDC, in 2020, the number one leading cause of death in this United States of America was heart disease. Number five on that list was stroke. And number 10 was kidney disease. To put things in perspective, that same year, 2020, COVID-19 pandemic was the number three leading cause of death. Medicare, which is the governmental agency responsible for providing benefits to our seniors, they have listed hypertension as the number one most chronic condition amongst Medicare beneficiaries. So ischemic heart disease, stroke, and kidney disease. These diseases, this trifecta, they are a direct consequence of uncontrolled high blood pressure. Now, hypertension, Uncontrolled high blood pressure, I'm going to use them intermittently so I don't get confused, pretty much the same thing. But hypertension has been dubbed the silent killer because unlike the flu or or cold or the COVID-19, there are no signs or symptoms with hypertension. People that have hypertension don't really know they have hypertension. There are only consequences of hypertension, the consequences in the form of ischemic heart disease, stroke, and chronic kidney disease. I have chosen to define hypertension or chronic high blood pressure as a persistent elevation in blood pressure. The two keywords I want you to pinpoint in this definition is persistent and elevation. The definition of persistent is continuous or non-stop. Elevation means an increase from baseline to a heightened state. So, you know, in, in, in my definition, uh, you can just rightly say that Hypertension is a non-stop or continuous increase of blood pressure from baseline. Now, let's not confuse chronic high blood pressure or hypertension from a sudden increase in um, or temporary increase in blood pressure, which we as humans go through um, throughout the day. Now, we could have a temporary increase in blood pressure from pain, from being frightened, anxiety, me personally riding the roller coaster or seeing a needle, or stress-related habits such as binge eating, uh, tobacco use, or alcohol consumption. Now, the one constant with the human blood pressure is that, like I said, it varies. uh, It waxes and wanes uh, throughout the day. But the body is able to regulate these temporary increases to ensure that it doesn't persist. For example, um, I like to, uh, you know, play hide and seek. I like to scare people, hide behind the door and say, you know, bam, hey, you know, and see the reaction on your face and see the apprehension. You will notice in that scenario or, say, a near accident, you're driving a car near accident, you are overcome by this heightened state or this frightened state. You notice that your blood or your heart rate tends to beat faster. And when your heart rate beats faster, there's always a corresponding increase in your blood pressure. Now, as long as that doesn't persist, it doesn't lead to hypertension because the body is able to self-regulate. All right, so hypertension, as we all know, has been classified um, into two classes. There's primary hypertension and there is secondary hypertension. Now, primary hypertension occurs in majority of patients who have hypertension. I think the rate, the, the data says about 90 to 95% of patients who have hypertension fall under primary hypertension. Now, the thing about primary hypertension is the etiology, the origin, the cause is not really known. Although certain environmental factors such as obesity, um, a lack of physical activity, excessive salt intake, and alcohol consumption have been implicated. Conversely, uh, genetic factors as well as childhood factors such as obesity, Uh, low birth weight and premature birth have also been implicated. In terms of secondary hypertension, it only occurs in five to 10% of the population that suffer from hypertension. Unlike primary hypertension, we do know the causes, the origin, the etiology of secondary hypertension. For the most part, it is disease or drug-induced. Now diseases that have been implicated to cause secondary hypertension include thyroid disease, adrenal gland disease, as well as kidney disease. Conversely also, drug-induced um, uh, secondary hypertension is um, is also being exposed. Now, certain medications have been linked with secondary hypertension. As a disclaimer, let me state for, um, for starters that Taking this medication once or twice a year or every other month or just sporadically will not cause secondary hypertension. Chronic use of this medication, especially in the presence of underlying conditions, will push a patient towards secondary hypertension. Now, as a pharmacist, I always wanna talk about drugs. So let me explain shit further about the medications that have been implicated to cause secondary hypertension. Recreational drugs such as cocaine have been implicated. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and these are very common drugs that we use to treat pain and fever. So drugs such as napraxene, um, ibuprofen, indometicine, uh, pyroxicam have been implicated. COX-2 inhibitors, these are also medications that um, are used to treat pain. There's pretty much one drug that I know in this class. It's called telekaxib. It's sold as Celebrex. High-dose estrogen contraceptives have also been implicated. Decongestants; these are medications we use when we have a runny nose. Um, to we it's taken either orally or you know it's it's inhaled via the nostrils. Most decongestants that contain phenylephrine or pseudoephedrine; these two ingredients are what we call vasoconstrictors. They tend to narrow blood vessels. Why they might work in your nostrils to narrow the, the blood vessels to push out the flame? It is also you know, um, distributed all over the body. So it would narrow your blood vessel and cause vasoconstriction and cause a rise in your blood pressure. Nicotine-containing products, corticosteroids, erythropoietin-stimulating agents. These are medications that are used to stimulate or boost red blood cell count in our dialysis patients. And means certain antidepressants. Um, Off the top of my head, I can think of um, felafaxin, also called Uh, or desfilafacin, also called Pristik, as well as lithium. These are medications we take daily uh, for depression, have also been implicated to cause secondary hypertension. Supplements. Supplements are loosely regulated by the FDA. You don't need a prescription. You can go to any um, pharmacy or grocery store, and you probably find them in the supplement section. So some of these supplements have also been implicated to cause secondary hypertension. A few of them are ephedra, gene seg, bitter or sour orange, ginkgo biloba, licorice, as well as St. John's worth. So if you do not have hypertension, but you take these medications chronically, you need to check your, get your blood pressure checked. If you have high blood pressure and you've been taking these medications, you need to talk to your pharmacist to find better alternatives. If you have hypertension and it's not controlled, and you're taking these medications, this might be why your blood pressure is not controlled. Other causes of high blood pressure include um, sugar consumption. Uh, It's been said that um, a a bottle of soda would increase your your blood pressure. Loneliness has been shown to negatively affect your blood pressure over a period of time. Sleep apnea. Uh, We will talk more about sleep apnea during the treatment um, section, but please note that Interrupted breathing or just snoring during sleep can cause an increase in your blood pressure. Wait for this. Excessive talking. Blood pressure increases when you talk. So if you talk excessively, uh (laughs) uh-oh. Dehydration. High blood pressure is common in patients that are chronically dehydrated. All right. So we're going to talk about guidelines on managing hypertension. I'm not going to delve too deep into this topic because there's a lot of guidelines out there. But... Um, the national, the Joint National Committee (JNC), the European Society of Hypertension, for the most part, have been releasing guidelines um, regarding managing treatments of hypertension for the last decades. Recently, the American Cardiology Council (ACC) and the American Heart Association have also released guidelines for treating hypertension. Now. Honestly, both guidelines that I'm going to delve into um, the um, Joint National Committee guidelines, as well as the European Society of Hypertension guidelines, uh, as well as the ACC AHA guidelines, there's different benchmarks. But before I delve into that, let me talk about the JNC, the the Joint National Committee 8th Edition guideline. I feel this guideline is still the basis for where we are today in how we manage and treat people that have hypertension, because it was the first time I personally have seen the guideline that uh, factored in age of a patient, ethnicity, as well as uh, com- comorbidities, that's other diseases that the patients have, uh, In you know, in addition to hypertension. I think this is very, very, important because we tend to overlook that, you know, there is a race factor, there is an age factor, there is a comorbid factor when we treat um, disease condition. So, the JNC 8 guideline was for me the first guideline that I saw that was really, really nitpicky about race, age, and comorbidities for all the good reasons. The JNC guidelines uh, said that the first line treatment for, treat- for hypertension should be limited to four drug classes. And these drug classes are the thiazide diuretics. So, there you have the hydrochlorothiazide, the clothalidone. Um, The calcium channel blockers, that you have your nifedipine, your amlodipine. You have the angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, also called ACE. You have your lisinopril, your enalopril, your fosinopril, as well as the angiotensin receptor blockers, uh, also called ARBs. Uh, Here you have your valsatin, as well as your losatin. They went further and said, second and third line treatments include higher doses of medications in this class or combination of different medications in various classes. The JNC8 guideline went further and said, when initiating therapy for patients of African descent without chronic kidney disease, calcium channel blockers or thiazide diuretics should be the first-line therapy for these patients. It also said that for patients who have chronic kidney disease regardless of ethnicity, Androtensin-converting enzyme inhibitors ACE or the angiotensin receptor blockers ARBs should be the first-line therapy. Furthermore, for patients that are over 75 years of age our seniors or elderly patients, the first-line therapy should be either the calcium channel blockers or the thiazide diuretics. All right, so let's compare the cutoffs for the ACC AHA um, um, guidelines compared to the European guidelines. The American uh, Cardiology Cancer, as well as the American Heart Association, have defined hypertension as blood pressure over 130, over 80. The European guidelines have defined it as blood pressure over 140, over 90. I'm not going to delve into which one works better, but it's something for you to discuss with your doctor. Now, the meat of this conversation, of this particular show, is looking at blood pressure measurement, which I think has been overlooked for far too long. As we know, as I rightly said at the beginning of this conversation, I said, hypertension is a silent killer. There are no symptoms. The only way for you to find out if you have hypertension or high blood pressure is by checking your blood pressure. And the basis for diagnosing and managing hypertension is the measurement of blood pressure. Inadequate measurements or the use of inaccurate blood pressure measuring devices can lead to overdiagnosis and over-treatment, which over-treatment can cause unwanted side effects. But also, under-diagnosis and under-treatment can lead to cardiovascular diseases, you know, heart disease, stroke, or kidney disease. So it is imperative for us to um, get accurate measurements of our blood pressure. Now, I mentioned during my definition of hypertension with both the ACC AHA guidelines, as well as the uh, European Society of Hypertension guidelines, I mentioned numbers greater than 130 over 80. Now, these two numbers, what do they signify? The upper number is called the systolic blood pressure, and it's pretty much a measure of the pressure in your artery when your heart beats. The lower number is the diastolic blood pressure, which is simply a measure of the pressure in your artery when in between beats, so your heart beats, you know, there's when the heart is beating, there's a pressure, in between beats, there's a pressure. So when the heart beats, systolic, in between beats, diastolic. So blood pressure measurements commonly today is measured in one of three ways. So typically it's measured in the doctor's office or it's measured outside of the doctor's office. Now outside of the doctor's office involves home measuring, of your blood pressure or an ambulatory BP uh, monitoring. So, out the outside, you get your own personal BP device you use at home. The ambulatory BP monitoring can also be used at home. Now, in 2018, a universal st- uh, standard was developed by the American Association for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentation, the European Society of Hypertension, and the International Organization of Standardization and they came up with this standard for validating BP devices worldwide. Now, these standards were meant to ensure that only the BP measuring devices that have been validated are used to measure BP. Unfortunately, currently there's over 4,000 automated BP devices, but only 10% or less of that total number has been validated or subjected to an independent evaluation. So here is the question of the day. If you have a loved one, with high blood pressure, or you have high blood pressure, you have your 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 home measuring uh, BP device. Has it been validated? Do you know? Are you sure it's been validated? Are you using the appropriate BP device? Is your BP you take at home? Is it being underdiagnosed or overdiagnosed? Good question. And I have the answers right right, right next. There's organizations, or there are organizations um, with scientific um, associations that have. They have built platforms online to show a list of validated BP monitors or BP devices. Here in the United States, we have an organization um, called VDL. It stands for Validated Device List uh, Listing. It's under the auspices of the American Medical Association. And they have their website as www.validate, V-A-L-I-D-A-T-E, validate BP Org. If you go to that website, there's a list of um, devices, BP devices, that they have said, we have validated these devices, they are good to go. Across the pond in Canada, uh, under the auspices of the Hypertension Canada Society, there's also a website, www.hypertension.ca/slash BP devices. They too have a list of BP devices that have been validated for use in Canada. They've also gone a step further by actually imprinting logos. They have a logo on each BP device that they have validated, saying validated by Hypertension Canada. There's various um, standards. There is gold, there's silver, I think there's bronze. In the UK, under the auspices of the British and Irish Hypertension Society, they have a website, www.bihsoc.org BP, dash monitors, and they too have a listing of um, BP devices that they have validated. So when we do measure blood pressure, the data um, or the resultant measurement can be classified into four classes. There is normal tension, which is the BP at the doctor's office is normal. The BP outside of the doctor's office is also normal. There is also class two, sustained hypertension, which is the BP is elevated at the doctor's office and the BP is also elevated outside of the doctor's office. And then the number three is the white coat hypertension, it says, which means that the BP is elevated at the doctor's office, but the BP is normal outside of the doctor's office. Huh. Why? First of all, I don't know about you, but I am scared of needles. When I go into a hospital to see my doctor, who she is really, really awesome, I freak out. For some reason, even though I work in a hospital, when I go in as a patient, I think think the worst things, you know. So, you know, I'm always like thinking about my blood pressure when they're checking it. I'm always like thinking about, you know, soccer or football, good thing to get my mind distracted. So there's a lot of people out there that feel the same way. But if your blood pressure is only elevated, your doctor's office and not elevated at outside of the doctor's office, do you have high blood pressure? We'll talk about that down the road. And number four is mask hypertension, which is the reverse of white coat hypertension, which is the blood pressure is not elevated. It's normal at the doctor's office, but it's elevated outside of the doctor's office. So some people just feel better when they leave their home, but when they get home, yeah, all help. it all breaks loose. <laughs> so, White coat hypertension and mask hypertension are common in both treated and untreated individuals. Even, when, even in instances where the blood pressure has been carefully taken at the doctor's office, there's still 15 to 25% of patients that have white coat hypertension and 10 to 20% of patients that have mask hypertension. So, why am I saying this? Because it's important to note that the diagnosis of the white coat hypertension and mask hypertension require confirmation with a second set of -of out-of-office blood pressure measurements. So let's look look at um, a few things here that might surprise you. It has been said that when a doctor's office BP or when the doctor's office BP measurement is close to 140-90 threshold, the chances of misdiagnosis is increased because of the white coat effect. So, if you have a range of say 140 to 159 systolic and 90 to 99 diastolic in the doctor's office, the probability of a white coat hypertension is magnified compared to uh, those with higher um, um, office um, blood pressure measurements. Likewise, For individuals that have the same BP range at the doctor's office from, say, systolic 130 to 139 and 85 to 89, you know, there's also chances that uh, the probability of mask hypertension is also there. So the whole point of me saying this is it is very, very important to always get a second set of -of out-of-office BP measurement to confirm a diagnosis of hypertension. So let's talk about office BP measurement. this remains the most commonly used method for detecting and managing hypertension. Um, most of the studies that we have out there uh, that have evidence for treating hypertension are all based on um, office BP measurements. But when used alone, when the office BP measurement is used alone, it it can it might be misleading uh, uh, in several treated and untreated patients. So it has been recommended that always use an ambulatory BP monitoring measurement or a home BP measurement to whenever possible to confirm diagnosis of um, hypertension. What are the advantages of the doctor's office BP measurements? You know, it's readily available. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty common. It's, you know, every time you go to your doctor's office, it is there. It's there for you, there for the patient. But the disadvantage is that some of these devices in doctors' offices are not standardized or validated. So it can lead to either an overestimation of your BP or an underestimation of your BP. And for the most, and for what it's worth, uh, I'm not, you know, I love our doctors, they do a great job, but office BP measurements will not detect mask hypertension. You know, that's that's a classification where the BP is normal at the doctor's office, but elevated, outside of the doctor's office. But if we must stick with the the doctor's, um, the office BP measurements, it is recommended that uh, there has to be a minimum of two to three visits at one to four week intervals, depending on the BP level, as well as the cardiovascular risk before a diagnosis can be made. You know, a diagnosis cannot be made based on a single office visit unless the blood pressure at that particular time is very high, over, say, 180, over 10, or there's evidence of target organ damage. Now, ambulatory BP measurement. Now, this is my favorite way of measuring hypertension. Because like I said at the beginning of the show, uh, the human blood pressure waxes and wanes you know, there's a degree of variability all through the day. You know, when you're eating, when you're cooking, when you're watching football, you're watching soccer, you're watching golf, you're playing Xbox, or you're just chilling. Um, you know, your BP tends to vary. Uh, and so the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring uh, device is, um, is a device that can be used to measure for up to 24 hours uh, your blood pressure. It, it pretty much measures you uh, during your normal, your normal scenario. Uh, because it consists of a small digital blood pressure monitor that's attached to a belt around your waist that's hooked to a cuff around your arm, and it's just there taking your BP measurement, you know, 24-7. The advantages of the ambulatory BP measurement is that it provides multiple BP readings, you know, both during the day and at night. It can detect nocturnal hypertension as well as non deepest something we will discuss uh, um, when it comes to the treatment of hypertension. It would readily identify the white coat hypertension as well as the mask hypertension. It can confirm uncontrolled and resistant hypertension. And um, based on several guidelines, this is the best method for diagnosing hypertension because you don't need more than one visit. You can see your blood pressure during the course of 24 hours. Although, you know, I'm readily applauding this um, way of checking your blood pressure. But, you know, there's still some disadvantages of the ambulatory BP measurements. For one, it's not readily available in primary care settings. It's rather expensive and typically not covered by insurance providers, which, you know, is a cost for concern. Like I've said rightly, you know, hypertension is the backbone for ischemic heart disease, um, stroke, as well as uh, kidney disease, and we live in a society where you know we're, we're preaching preventive medicine. How do we prevent people from going to the hospital? How do we prevent people from falling sick? How do we prevent people from dying um, because they don't have, um, they they are unaware they have you know chronic high blood pressure? I do feel like having ambulatory BP measurements readily provided by our insurance companies readily provided. By our prim- primary care physicians will go a long way in mitigating the effect of, how, of uncontrolled high blood pressure. Because once you know, when people see their blood pressure, they're able to react better. You know, we have, you know, our fancy eye, eye watches. You know, they have EKG and you can check your oxygen saturation and all that. I, I wish they would have a, a BP, a ambulatory or 24-hour BP check on those watches because it goes a long way. To me, I, p- I feel that is... Uh, more important than an EKG because you know um, I just feel like hypertension we've known is the cause of most, most of the problems that you actually need to get you know you get uh, <laughs> check your EKG for. So this is just for me personally I'm not, I don't speak for any governmental agency or any political um, association, just me you know preaching the gospel. So further the disadvantages of the ambulatory BP measurement, it can be very discomforting when you're sleeping. And there's also a reluctance by patients to want to repeat uh, using um, the ambulatory um, process, you know, more than once. All right, finally, home BP measurements. Now, everybody that I know, you know, uh, has someone that they know that has a home BP measuring device. I have one. Uh, it's widely used. It's readily available. It can, you know, provide multiple BP readings away from the hospital in the usual environment of a patient. It can identify both white coat hypertension as well as mask hypertension, but there's a caveat to it. It's inferior to ambulatory BP measurements. And it's recommended as the best method for long-term follow-up of treated hypertension. So it's also you know cheap, like readily available, uh, and uh, it can help patients uh, monitor their therapies because they can take medications for hypertension and they can see the result by just measuring their BP at home. But disadvantages also abound. And one of those uh, include, do you have a validated BP device they're using at the home? Um, do you have the appropriate cough size? You know, Because there's standard cough sizes uh, which goes around your arm. But if I were, you know, uh, a lineman, uh, you know, offensive lineman, or, you know, I was a, I was a wrestler, uh, a rugby player, or I just ripped, uh, some of those standard cuffs do not apply to my bicep because, um, you know, they pretty much don't have the girth um, to go around the arm. Some BP measuring devices they use sometimes can induce anxiety in some patients. And, uh, you know, fortunately, this they, um, some patients are prone to selective reporting of BP readings. Uh, they tend to omit the higher BP um, um, numbers, uh, you know, just to make themselves um, feel better. Now, if we must use a home BP um, measurement or use our home BP at home, there are certain best practices that you have to know. You have to be in a quiet room with comfortable temperature. You can check your BP in a sauna or when you're freezing cold. has to be no smoking, caffeine intake, food or exercise 30 minutes prior to the measurement. You have to remain seated and relax for three to five minutes before you start the process and there's no talking during the measurement. In terms of your posture, you have to sit with your back supported by a chair. Uh, Your legs have to be uncrossed and your feet have to be flat on the floor. Your bare arm has to be resting on a table or any surface at a mid-arm level to your heart, and you always have to select the right cuff size. In conclusion, uh, I, I didn't mean to take so much of your time, but in concluding, you know, blood pressure is characterized by daily short-term and long-term fluctuations due to how complex the body is. It is important for you to have access to validated and up-to-date BP measuring device as a first step towards diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of high blood pressure. Thanks for joining me on this very first uh, episode of Shake Well Before Use. Uh, please feel free to uh, shoot me an email at askosas at shakewellbeforeuse.org That is ask-a-s-k osas-o-s-a-s o-s-a-s, at shakewellbeforeuse.org Do not forget to um, join us for uh, the part two uh, regarding hypertension where we will discuss and look at the various therapies that are out there to treat hypertension. Um, thanks for um you know joining once again. Um, and I'm looking forward to um, the next show. Thank you, in a ditch. I will look at some of my friends and get that itch to scratch that cash, to look that flash. Grew with a complex, no self-esteem. Pops speech back when that didn't make clean. Mama stayed home till the boys got grown. We reminisce sometimes on the phone house, sometimes for Christmas. Wasn't no wishless, wasn't no check.